Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. Hi everyone, it's uh, Roxanne. Thanks for tuning in again this week. This week I have Dr. Natasha Williams. Uh, hi Natasha, how are you today? I'm fine, how are you? Good, good. Uh, Natasha brings um, a special background with her and um, I thought she would add a really a nice space to uh, the podcast. Um, she's a psychologist and she uh, we're here with a, um, in Ontario and she's uh, done a variety of things. I'm going to kind of tell you a little bit about her background. She's the past chair of the Board of Directors of Women's Health and Women's Hands. It's a community health center for black women and women of color in Toronto. Uh, and she's also a, a member of the OPA, or the Ontario Psychological Association, Canadian Psychological Association, and the APA, which is the American Psychological Association. She's a, currently a trainer with the Adler Graduate Institute, and she certifies in um, people in the CBT program. She uh, guest facilitates with... Uh, the Canadian Association of Mental Health, um, focusing on topics such as culturally adapting uh, behavioral uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for English-speaking Caribbean people, which I'm, I'm going to be very uh, interested in um, talking to her about that, uh, seeing that uh, I'm from Trinidad. And uh, she operates the Psychological Services, um, the co-director of Allied Psychological Services, where she operates an anti-oppressive private practice, um, looking at assessment, individual group, and family mm -hmm. therapy, and corp sorry, not family therapy, just group therapy, corporate consulting, research, supervision, and training to clients with different ethno-racial backgrounds, gender, and socioeconomic backgrounds. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> impressive. Thank you. So, um, so I'm... Um, so you grew up in Dominica, which is... Uh, so did when when did you move to Canada? So let's we'll go back a little bit. I'm born here in in Toronto. So I'm born, born in Toronto. Toronto. Okay. I'm okay. born in Toronto. So my parents are from the Commonwealth of Dominica. Okay. Um, so I have uh, that experience in terms of being born here, but being raised as you know you're you're Dominican. <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> so. so you have an opposite experience to me, and I think we yeah. I said this to you just coming on that I was born in Trinidad and Tobago right here just when I was turning 17 to go to um, grade 13 and then go on to to U of T right so, you know so my most of I am Trini like they say right and then coming and having to make the switch you right know, um, as kind of acculturating to two cultures um, coming to Canada having traveled a fair amount prior to that but never living anywhere else and then starting into school immediately Yes. So in my family, I have that experience as that experience in regards to we brought a cousin over in around that time. She was about 16. So I saw her transition. She lived with us and I saw her transition from, you know, being in the school system in the Caribbean uh, till about a certain age. And then from there coming in and then the systems that were put in place to allow her to transition 
um, as well into the Canadian education system. So it was a, it was a very interesting experience to, to witness on her end as well. Right, because you know, you, you don't, you, you can't wait to like on that Western element, right? We were exposed to a lot of things in the islands and of course media, but media at that time to now is different. Yes, absolutely. Um, so there was at least, a, you know, more than two channels, like we had two and 11 and anybody that's Trinidadians was saying, yeah, and they signed up at 11 o'clock at night and it was always news. So guess what? <laughs> <laughs> and then you come here and, you know, everything is, you know, open-ended and, um, obviously, there was a bit of diversity, but not a lot, because I was in Mississauga, which is just out, uh, outside of Toronto for me. Right. Um, and at that point, there was a bit of diversity, but not a lot. And then um, lots of things that were different um, off the hop, like, you know, their system, the, the academic system was a lot more lax compared to what I was accustomed to, you know, and just, you know, food and culture and customs, those types of things. Now, when you came, did you um, did they put you back in a, a back a grade behind or anything like that? Because I knew that was sort of the norm um, back then, and they did that with my cousin as well. And the rationale for that was uh, so that she could become accustomed to the Canadian education system. I don't know. I don't know if they did the same thing with you. They didn't with me, but my math. Um, I was actually having a conversation with some friends on the weekend. Um, because in, in the British system, which is what I grew up in with in Trinidad, um, or with our math, you just gave the answer. <laughs> show them the actual steps because right. they figured with these complex, you know, kind of concepts, if you got the answer, you got the answer. Well, um, here they wanted to see every step. So they actually fast tracked me back um, to kind of get up to the certain standards. So they made me do some um, you know, catch up so I could start showing my methods. And I was like, well, why do you need the method? And um, in Trinidad, now, you know, when we're taking uh, tests, we're not allowed to look left or right or backwards or forwards. Because right. reading, that was a very, very big norm. Here, I guess it wasn't. And I realized that quite quickly um, so that people would, on, you know, kind of pass answers and stuff like that, which was something that was horrifying when I kind of experienced it for the first time. So that's one of those things I went, oh my goodness, it was different. You know, so that's one of the small things. So to kind of tell me, you know, your path and what, what made you want to become a psychologist? Did you always know and kind of, you know, why you decided to specialize where, where you did? Okay. Well, my path was, was interesting to say the least. Um, I knew when I was about 13 years old that I wanted to be a psychologist, which is strange. It means basically as soon as I got into high school, I knew. Um, part of it was um, my mother had passed away two weeks before I had started high school. So, um, and she was basically my role model. Now she was not a psychologist, but to me, um, the way that she interacted with the community, with the Caribbean community, um, our friends and, and close family friends, it symbolized being a psychologist. People would go to her, look to her for advice. She was always very supportive um, and always, you know, was just very endearing um, and always wanted to see people level up to the next level. So yes, we've all immigrated here. You know, we're all in apartments at this point in time, but no, we need to own property. We need to keep on moving forward. And if you couldn't move forward right away, she would do things like 
um, sell some of her her um, company stocks because she had uh, she would uh, invest in company stocks. She worked at the telephone company, so if you didn't have all of your down payment for a house, no, well she would you know cash some of her stocks yeah. to assist uh, you know a family friend to make sure that they had the down payment for a house so that everyone in our circles would own property as an example so when she passed away i knew that i wanted to be somebody like that in the community somebody that would be able to um to really um be able to to connect with the community so in that respect what i did is i decided i was going to be a psychologist so i took all the courses that i needed to um in order to um, be able to get to university, to be able to um, take the path straight. Uh, so I did a Bachelor of Arts in, in psychology. My master's is in counseling psychology. And then when I decided to do my doctorate, I decided I wanted a clinical doctorate. Um, which meant that I didn't, I didn't want to go through the academic stream. I just wanted to make sure that I had the skills to be a clinician. Uh, so I took a PsyD instead, and I went to the United States to complete my doctorate. Um, and from there, what was interesting was, was that being a Canadian going to an American school, the training was a bit interesting. And what I noticed, especially with the cultural competency component, I found it was very... Um, I want to I say um, racist, almost, because what they would do is a lot of them, a lot of the training was this is how you work with the African-American client. This yeah. is how you work with the Asian-American client or the Native American client. And I had to sit back, even though I was young and a student, I really sat there and I was like, this doesn't make sense. This, this, I don't understand how you can group everybody into, um, you know, into a category and say that that's how you work with everybody. So it really didn't make sense to me. So when I came back uh, to Toronto, I said, okay, you know what, I think there's more to this than the training that I received. Um, so from there, I would start to seek out opportunities to um, get additional research to read, um, see what was out there in regards to, you know, how to work with, and in particular, my community, because I, I, I already saw growing up that mental health and mental illness was just not spoken about at all. There was a huge stigma behind it, um, a lot of shame uh, with that as well. So I wanted to really figure out how do we then open the dialogue and be able to provide resources or, or information to the community that I thought that was well needed. And hence, that's where I was able to uh, connect with uh, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Uh, they had a research project that was uh, funded by Citizenship and Immigration Canada. Uh, and that's where we were looking at how do we culturally adapt cognitive behavioral therapy for the Caribbean community. And then what they did is they, they did it in different uh, languages. So I was one of the primary therapists for the English speaking Caribbean community. They also had it in Spanish. And then they also eventually created a manual for the Creole French speaking community. So that's where that piece came in. And I was able to participate in that, pilot that project, be able to create a manual, which was then disseminated to community and then also facilitate training for community members that were also engaged in, in um, mental health 
and disseminating mental health services for the Caribbean community. And I was still, I've been training in that ever since. I've still been able to train several uh, practitioners in the community health center settings and, and, and stuff like that. So it's been a, um, a very fulfilling um, way of, of being able to disseminate to the community. And that project also then took me to the Caribbean as well to be able to train psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, medical doctors at UE or in other institutes. So I've been to Trinidad, I've been to Jamaica. Um, it looks like I might be heading to Dominica as well to actually go back home, quote unquote, to actually uh, disseminate some of those services there as well. So now we've been able to go to the Caribbean because they're asking for it. And they're really, they're, I think they're hurting. A lot of, a lot of um, adversity and trauma that's been happening there and they're looking at we can't have mental illness under the rug anymore because our community is suffering. So it's, it's been a great um, adventure <laughs> to say the least, to be able to be able to do the work particularly in the community. That, that's amazing. You know, growing up in uh, Trinidad and uh, remember we had issues, they had a, counselor i'm going to call her a school counselor and i remember you know my you know, my parents had some issues in their marriage and then you'd kind of as a child you're, you're young and i thought oh I'll, I'll go talk to her whatever she had no clue right it was like you know go talk to your mom and dad and i'm like well you know they're fighting so right. i can talk to them and i that's where i kind of start to think that i i realized there was a you know if we won't go gap in service back then and that i realized that you know and then you you really relied on your friends right who are right they're 12 and 13 like you too. So, you know, you can understand the level of it. And I, that's where I kind of born um, my sense of what I wanted to become as a psychotherapist, because I recognized what I needed as a, you know, a young adolescent um, was someone to speak to. And then if it was within the family, it's like, where do you go? Like, you know, you had nowhere to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of times you didn't really go anywhere because you needed to keep it within your four walls. So, I mean, even sharing it with friends was a little bit of an issue because the societal stigma was that, you know, either you're good or you're crazy. So if you even started to even talk about any tension or, or mental health issues that, that you were going through, you know, you would be labeled right away. So you really either kept it to yourself or you really kept it in your house. Um, if, even if you did go outside, quite possibly, you know, a lot of times clergy, um, you know, or your religious leaders were the places that you would go to for solace. Um, so anything about, you know, going to a therapist, a psychologist, or, or anything of that nature, there was no such thing. You, you, didn't, you didn't brandish your business. <laughs> right, right, for sure, because that means you're, you're telling fam your family business. business. Yes. Well, exactly. talk your, don't talk your family business, right? That, that's what they would say, right? Absolutely. So what I found is, well, I worked, um, I don't know if you probably don't know, but I, when I started, one of my very first jobs is was I was with victim services with the Metro Toronto Police. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I was finished my undergrad and I was in grad school and I, um, you know, back then, you know, you're, you're quite young. I'm say 24 years old. And, um, because of, I was of Caribbean descent, what they would do is, and I'll, I'll never forget these calls because they would say, okay, I'm, because what would happen is a lot of the um, individuals that were of Caribbean background would not talk to anybody, um, you know, that was Canadian. So they would send me in with my partner. And uh, I'll never forget this. They sent me one, and I still have this memory in my brain. 
Um, it was a family, um, a Caribbean Trinidadian family. It was a, a murder suicide. Oh, and, I see. And they had six kids, for, you know, and, um, you know, what, of course, at that point it wasn't done very well. The police, because they didn't, I think, have the skill, mm-hmm. they called us in, which we should not have been obviously reporting, but we had to talk to all children, you know, um, to be able to support them, to kind of tell them, you know, obviously we're just a bridge. We didn't do any of this. So we just did the crises, you know, at that time. And right. then we dodged them accordingly. But, you know, that impact, and I'm talking back in, I'm talking back in 1990 to, you know, um, that was so important because what would happen is when I would go in, there would be a more openness. Well, she's from Trinidad, you know what? She's, you know, quote unquote, one of us. So, you know, she can understand, she can understand culture. She can understand why this is so difficult, those types of things. So I'm just curious with, with what you learned. And I, I went, I did my undergrad, my, sorry, my grad school in, in uh, Lewiston, New York. So my wow. diversity courses were also focused on more of the black American identity. And things yeah. like And I would always say, I'm Trinidadian and my culture is a, mostly a black culture, even though I'm of East Indian descent. So it's a combination. Right. But that is not the reality of a, of a person that's Afri- African descent of uh, Caribbean descent. And they would go, well, no, what do you mean? And I'm like, it's very, very different. It's not the same. And then they would, you know, try to understand what I was saying. And they, you know, a lot of times the professors wouldn't get a sense of what I was explaining. Right. You know, so with you, I could see what you're saying with when you were doing your, your uh, doctorate. So tell me with the Caribbean uh, community now, um, what is it that you're seeing, um, or not just the Caribbean, but all ethnic groups, what are you seeing now um, mm-hmm. out there in, uh, the, when people are coming in, in corporations, you know, people seeking mental health services, yeah. things like that? Well, I, I think there's an interesting shift happening. Is I, I think that's the best way I can say it. They want more open dialogue. They, I think the communities and a lot of ethnic communities, so I, I, I can branch out in, outside of not just the Caribbean. What I'm really finding is, is that they're looking for dialogue. They know that, um, you know, I think generally where we're seeing that mental illness is being spoken about more. Um, Bell Let's Talk and a lot of these things which are opening up the dialogue. Um, but I think what a lot of times they're noticing is, is that that dialogue doesn't necessarily completely speak to my experience, you know, coming from an, uh, from an ethnic community. But we need to have this dialogue. So what I'm finding is, is that we're having a lot of, a lot of ethnic communities feeling more open to actually speak about uh, mental illness. And that um, even generationally, I'm sort of noticing that some of the gaps are starting to decrease. So where it, uh, whereas it's, you know, the, this generation now, I mean, I'm in my 40s, but, you know, the, sort of the, the 20, 20 year olds to 30, 40 year olds are um, becoming more open uh, to actually having the dialogue coming in for, for mental health services or for psychotherapy, uh, which is a huge difference in comparison to not even wanting to, uh, to, to come out of your home, never mind going to see someone who is as a complete stranger, but even older generations starting to even question um, what they've learned from beforehand and what they've understood culturally in terms of mental health and mental illness and starting to challenge 
some of some of that you know long-term ingrained um thought process that they would have had in regards to um what is mental illness what how does it really manifest is it that this person is really crazy or you know what there are so many factors that are that are coming into play when someone says that they're stressed or that they're having difficulty or that they're depressed or that they're 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 there's um there's shying away from other people or or whatever the case may be so that i find that there's more dialogue what I, the other thing that i'm seeing is is that a lot of people in ethnic communities are so happy to see people in the profession that are also from ethnic communities. Right. That has been a huge thing. So a lot of times when I have people calling into the office, they are looking for, yes, not only do I want to discuss what is going on with me and discuss my mental health, but do you have somebody there that is also, you know, African Canadian or, or, or whomever? Uh, because I want them to also understand, it's not just about depression. I want them to also understand what are some of the cultural implications? How this, um, how my circumstances came to be, also from a cultural vantage point. So I don't want to teach or explain this to a therapist who is not from my background, as 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 well-meaning as they would want to be. Um, I need someone who possibly understands my journey, understands how I walk in this world. You know, coming from an ethnic community, so. That's why when I talk about my practice and being from an anti-oppressive framework, it goes beyond just, yeah, I treat depression, anxiety, uh, trauma, whatever. We also have to understand some of the isms that are also in place, which also perpetuate mental illness and is also a part of it. So racism, sexism, classism, how all of these things interplay uh, uh, in terms of somebody's presentation. So when they are looking for somebody, they're like, yeah, listen, I, I really need someone who also understands how that oppression and oppressive frameworks have also contributed to um, my, my, my mental illness or my problems. So there is an openness, we still have a long way to go. So, you know, it's, inter it's interesting, right? Because I'm, I'm in the little Niagara Falls and I moved here. So it was very, it's, it's now becoming a bit more diverse, but it's still not. Um, right. So a lot of my clients are Canadians. Right. Um, and I'll give you an example of something that I, you know, because I trained, you know, I'm, my graduate degree was back in 1994, mm -hmm. moved here and kind of went into corporate consulting and then, and then went back to practice. Uh -huh. And I, I remember I had a, you know, a biracial um, person. It was a, I work with trauma and right. she'd come in and we were, you know, I was just, you know, supervising as a clinical supervisor, you get it. And we're talking and she was of Chinese and Canadian descent, visibly beautiful woman. And, but she looked, you could tell she was a bit Chinese. And so I was, we were deconstructing kind of where she was at and, um, you know, kind of, you know, looking at the backgrounds and stuff like that. I had done that briefly, but I, the question that I was remiss in asking was what were the cultural implications that she may have been Im impacted by and how that may have impacted her self-esteem or self-worth right. a lot of the other things with the trauma. And my clinical supervisor said to me, and I'm pretty astute. She goes, do you think about that? And I go, do I? And mm. I said, not consciously, she said, but you're, you've got to understand your way of presenting to the world 
and what you bring coming from the Caribbean, having been exposed where the president and maybe, you know, your doctor and your dentist were all a different color. You saw the, you see the world in a different way. And I'm, and I'm, not, I'm struck, right? I'm like, I'm a pretty astute person. And then she said to me, what was her reality growing up here? And mm-hmm. back in, you know, obviously next session, we start to talk and she talked a lot about bullying because she didn't look white enough and she didn't look Chinese enough and types of things and um, how her reality was that she always had to struggle to fit. And, you know, um, you know, I'm not Canadian, but I'm half Canadian, but I'm half Chinese and those types of things. So it's interesting when you talk about from your framework, you know, deconstructing um, what that that realities in someone's mind and then how it might be presenting with the problem or the issue that they're, they're coming with. Absolutely. You know, so I think very, very fascinating. Now with, with people coming into corporations, uh, I want to chat and, and pivot a little bit there and tell me how are, if we're talking about, you know, um, you know, diversity in, in, in therapy. <laughs> and, and I'm sure I know your practice. I'm, I'm going to assume there's several practices throughout the GTA, but I don't know like yours. Mm-hmm. What about corporations? What are they doing? Get getting ready uh, for the influx of what we know is, you know, with the diversity in Canada or even in the U S. Hmm. I think the corporations, it's, it's very interesting. I find that a lot of them aim to get ready by, um, you know, having diversity training, uh, for example, um, and what does that look like? Um, but I, I think it's fascinating. A lot of times when you put, uh, when you say diversity training, a lot of times it, 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 I don't, I, it doesn't end up being, I think, as comprehensive as it needs to be. A lot of it is just, okay, very surface. Let, let, let's, let's put it that way. So it's like, okay, be prepared. There's going to be, you know, there's, there's people in this, you know, that are going to be part of our team that are going to be from all different backgrounds and religions. And, and you know, we have to be encompassing and, and, and mindful of all of these, uh, all, of the, all of the different ethnic groups. I think a lot of times what corporations don't uh, necessarily understand is is that within that corporation there's there's still continues to be a systemic racism that permeates through through that that organization and a lot of times it is seen through microaggressions um, and and microaggressions meaning you know a lot of the the, the, the things that are being said or some of the nuances that are being said to other um, people from ethnic communities that over time become very multi-layered um, like traumas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a client, for example, who, you know, for her, it was every day, the, the little things that, are, that were being said, the, the spaces that she was not allowed to take. Um, uh, you know, being in an office, but basically saying that, you know, why are you, why are you sitting here? Um, you know, this is, this is, you're not supposed to be meeting here or, or something. So again, she, her feeling like that she wasn't allowed to take the same space that some of her, her Caucasian colleagues could take, or if she would say anything, oh, here comes the angry black woman. Um, so not being able to express herself or, or to state her opinion for fear of, well, she's this, you know, tall, you know, uh, very commanding black woman. Uh, so she's very intimidating. So a lot of the, a lot of these nuances that would 
occur in these spaces where you then don't feel that you can be yourself um, or, and be who you are. It's like, I cannot be, I cannot be my ethnic self. I have to conform to what this either European or Caucasian or Westernized paradigm is so that I can fit in. And to do that, that means I cannot be my authentic self. I have to put on a mask Mm -hmm. so that I can not only fit in, but then so that I could thrive. So where some of that difficulty lies was where a lot of corporations don't understand a lot of those underlying mechanisms that are occurring, which are then intimidating a lot of of people that are working in those workplaces that um, are aiming to either get ahead or to actually have a space where they feel safe. There's, there's a lack of safety that a lot of uh, people from ethnic communities that are working in these organizations feel that they do not have because they cannot be their authentic self. I have one client that basically says, I cannot, I, I feel like I can't be a, my, my black self for fear of coming across as too, too aggressive. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? She's like, well, I, you know, if I have an opinion, I'd like to voice it. But then when I do voice that opinion, I come across as the angry black woman. So then what I usually do is just not say anything. So that I can very stifling, which is very stifling. Very stifling. And I think a lot of uh, corporations, again, don't understand that, that um, underlying foundational mechanism that I think is occurring within uh, within organizations or corporations, which are causing your 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 workforce to not be as productive because they're they're not be able they're not able to bring their authentic self. Now, mind you, I'm not talking about bullying or or being aggressive, literally. But if I cannot bring my authentic self or have my voice for fear of being labeled or typecasted or or not being able to see as to fit, then I, I think. You know, your workforce cannot function at 100% because you're asking people who are from ethnic communities to conform to what you believe this either westernized or European paradigm is. And that, I think, ends up being a huge problem, which will impact productivity. For sure. So if you're saying, you know, we have a Eurocentric frame. Right. So inbred and obviously has been, you know, here since the inception of Canada. Right. The U.S., so to kind of, you know, I'll give an example. So I married someone from Canada. And um, so picture this. I'm a little, you know, town here of 7,000 people and I show up. <laughs> yes. I'm 22 years old. So we're talking, you know, 30 years ago. And, you know, I, and then people weren't sure where to put me. And I think I may have shared this with you over lunch. You're like, oh, I think she's Jamaican, but right? she's pretty good English and, um, you know, and that, that was the extent of it until people got to know me. And they, and, and uh, my ex-husband at the time said he overheard his mother saying, well, she speaks proper English. She says she's quite articulate and things like that because it was, it was, it was, a, it was an ignorance. And I mean, mind you, I could say I was, when once my, my community got to know me, I'm completely embraced here. It's a small little town, uh, like, like an island that I grew up in and I love it, mm-hmm. but I'm, Beginning, it was the fact that it was different and people are afraid oftentimes of different and um, and then you know they I would say you know people would say something as simple and this is silly but I'm like where is Trinidad and I'd be like well you know where the equator is 
And, you know, and then I would say, you know, it's the most southerly Caribbean island just above the equator. And then there's South America. Oh, because a lot of times people wouldn't know where it was or things like that. So sometimes you're so right. It's that not knowing that people would, and they would be afraid to ask the question like, oh, you know, did you, you know, did you grow up in a normal home? I said, well, yeah, I grew up in a home like the one I live in now. Oh, okay. <laughs> what was your school system like? Well, it was British. Oh, okay. It was very strict. And, you know, and then again, so I, it's interesting when you say these things about microaggressions and people don't know and how they proceed per perpetuates probably that, you know, that whole thing of because that person's different, that must mean they, something, you know, they, they won't fit. And then what's interesting is what a lot of people will do is try to find a category to put you in. And a lot of times that is for their comfort. You know, it's like, okay, let me see. She looks like this, but yes, yeah, she speaks this way. Right. So, you know, let me try and figure out what category I could put her in, but that is for their comfort and, and to ease their curiosity more than anything else. Right. And then once I could create this category, okay, this is where we'll fit her in for now, right? Mm -hmm. Until something else comes up and you're like, oh, well, wait a minute. You yeah. know, again, oh, she's, she's quite articulate because God forbid somebody from an ethnic community cannot, cannot speak, right? And God forbid an accent means that you are not articulate, right? right? You need to speak the, the Queen's English, you know, to be seen as articulate. But the minute you have an accent, then all of a sudden, the, you know, an accent means you're not articulate. So right. again, those in and of itself are then those microaggressions in regards to how close is this person to Eurocentric views or Eurocentric standards. And if they're not close enough, they're seen as different and other and not good enough. So I'm, I'm curious because when you're saying that this diversity training and I, you know, we've all been there in those um, and you know, it's, we're hitting the surface. I would think you know, from what I've been exposed to in my corporate consulting, that that surface just, it just touches the top. And right. there are certain things that systemically need to be addressed for us right. to start having, I'm going to call it real, authentic connection and, and conversations about work, right? About productivity, about being present, about being, you know, available, but not producing at your, you know, at, at 100%. So what kind of things are being suggested to companies that you see now or what things should be, should companies or people listening in senior management to this podcast be right. thinking about looking at to, in reference to get themselves up um, on a metric to, to get more, I'm going to use it, the word culturally aware. Right. And I, and I appreciate that because I know we talk about other cultural sensitivity and, and all of the, these terms. And I, I find that to me, those are just buzzwords. Yeah. Um, they don't necessarily describe, I think, what would possibly be needed uh, for, for, for corporations. I think the first piece is, is that the corporation has to be open and willing enough to have the uncomfortable conversation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the diversity training is, again, for comfort. Yeah. It's to say, it's to actually say, look, we've had this diversity training, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But let us have the uncomfortable conversation and that, and that will allow us to go deeper. It's to understand how the corporation could then be perpetuating that systemic racism. 
You know, what does that system, what does that systemic racism look like? And how does your company possibly perpetuate that? Right? Because I think a lot of times lack of awareness and ignorance is what fuels systemic racism. And you know, if the if the frontward facing customer is now becoming a different colored face or a different religious space, person coming in, your customer coming in is right. all potentially ethnically different also. Absolutely. So it's like a double, it's like a double-edged kind of conundrum because if let's say myself or you go to work into that corporation and people don't know much about us, they tiptoe around us, they make assumptions, all those things, and we're and I'm on guard. So I'm gonna be, you know, there's gonna be a lot of presenteeism because I'm gonna be guarded, kind of trying to do my job. I'm not gonna be productive. And and your people coming into your corporation and whatever elements, they're also potentially different. How are they perceiving your front line or your middle management? That's it. That's it. Because I think a lot of times what a lot of corporations don't realize is how they present themselves. You know, if you're, you know, top tier or, or, you know, your management and everything does not represent the community that you're trying to reach out to, that in and of itself is a problem. Right. right? And that also speaks to the systemic racism that is going on within your company. So, I mean it is important for them to understand how their hiring practices, how they present themselves in terms of acquiring business and, and, and that sort of thing. How does that impact um, their bottom line? Because we live in a diverse you know, society. And in a diverse, I mean, yes, I'm in Toronto, but that doesn't mean you know, Toronto's the be all end all, but Toronto, there's what, over 3.5, almost 4 million you know, individuals widely diverse and if you're wanting to tap into that but also understanding that the the forward face of your company is primarily caucasian right not it, it it's not going to it, it's not going to be helpful and it actually it actually will will reduce your productivity because you have people from other ethnically diverse communities that would not want to buy into your product or want to come to your <laughs> Or, or whatever the case may be. So you also have to look at what face are you presenting, uh, you know, as the forward face of your company. And, and, and that sometimes is the difficult discussion that they, you know, they'll say, well, we hire so and such or whatever. I go, but what, how does your company present itself? Um, you know, do I look at your, 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 not only your CEOs, but your management and, and whatever the case may be, and do I see ethnically diverse um, individuals. And I, and I also ask a company to look at some of the terminology that they use. Um, a lot of times we'll talk about ethnically different and I said different in comparison to whom? <laughs> Good point. Right? Yeah. So we have to look at that and that's why I use ethnically diverse versus ethnically different because when we talk about difference we're looking at something that is the norm and everything outside of that is something different. Um, which means we're still putting the Eurocentric views as sort of the, the top or the mainstay and everything after that has to be judged by, by the Eurocentric view. Uh, so I go, what terminology are you using in, in, in your materials, in, in sort of how you present yourself as a company, um, in the training that you have received? Right. So a lot of that, then we, we have to get into the uncomfortable uh, conversations, which a, a lot of times companies or organizations do not want to do. 
Um, but if you're able to do that and start that discussion, you can then start to um, peel back. Um, and not only peel back, I think it's um, uh, just being able to unravel Mm-hmm. some of these, um, these these systems that have been in place for a long time. So it's, it's not a one conversation thing. It's something that is not going to also happen overnight as well. But as you start entering in these uncomfortable uh, conversations, what you end up having is a place that is going to be more open to have ethnically diverse uh, individuals and um and and people individuals within within the within the organization which means your organization will be able then to reach out to more people which is then going to be increase your productivity so one will beget the other beget the other right so attraction because if you think of the you know the millennials coming up and you know all the the your talent more than likely is going to be that that combination or ratio of um you know ethnically diverse you will get a combination and how are you going to attract them? And even if you do attract them, how are you going to keep them? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. From that if, red end. You know. Feeling uncomfortable in, in, in that setting. You can, you can get me, but how do you maintain me? Right. 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 You know, how do you maintain your client or how do you maintain your employee? If I'm not feeling safe in, in, in my workplace, I don't know how long I'm going to stay there for. And if I am staying there, how productive I am I in a space where I don't feel safe or I don't feel comfortable? Well, I think, you know, you made a, a valid, valid point that if I'm stifling as any human being, and we know this as a psychologist and a psychotherapist, that eventually that stuff has to, it has to find a way out, Absolutely. right? You know, so suppression will take forms in more arbitrations, more conflict in the workplace, more lost days, incidental absences, harassment, all those things that are the metrics that you look for, how productive are you at at work, and your bottom line is going to be on the increase. And just from going for something as simple as, um, simple but not easy, how, what does it take to meet every individual safe at work, regardless of what background they're coming from? Absolutely. And again, a lot of times from a corporate viewpoint, when we talk about loss of productivity, the biggest thing that contributes to loss of productivity is mental illness. Mm -hmm. So if your workplace or your workforce is not well, anxiety, depression, those types of things, that is going to directly impact your bottom line. Mm -hmm. So it is is of the utmost importance, uh, not to do diversity training and, and all of these types of things, but to address um, you know, ethnic diversity within your workplace. For sure. And I think it's, you know, uh, from a perspective, looking at mental wellness, and I will say it's mental wellness all the way up to, you know, potentially people that have to go off because they are, you know, there's definite psychiatric concerns. But really, we know that if people are more connected, they're able to recognize their stress response. If they're able to do that, they're able to internally take responsibility for what they need to take care of within, care of within themselves. If they're recognizing it's bigger than them, they go to who they need to to get the appropriate support so they could stay at work. Right. So if all those things aren't in place, um, then you know obviously things are going to fall down and it's going to impact you know what what it's costing the company just overall. Absolutely. You know? So now. I um I know you have a course coming up which is a bit of a pivot so I want to just before we step off the um the element on diversity I, if there's any um 
managers or even C-suite people that are listening that are thinking, what should, what, how do I decide where we are? And if I could make an impact, what would be one thing that they could do or, you know, um, to be able to kind of gauge where they are as a company? Mm, oh, that's a really good question. Oh. I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times I think organizations pull in a lot of stats. A lot because you're always looking at statistics and always looking at you know where your company where your company is at this point in time how productive is is the, is the company so a lot of times the numbers yeah of themselves do not lie yeah and if you're noticing for example that your company your company's statistics are stagnant or or are not necessarily growing exponentially there could be a clue there in regards to um, productivity yeah and the culture um or you know checking the pulse of your 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 department because is it just that you know is it one for one numbers or is there something going on here where you have to check the wellness mm -hmm. of your of your group of your team yeah. So a lot of times the first place to go is, is, and again, a lot of times managers will do this is sort of looking at the statistics or the productivity of the company and the productivity will speak volumes. And if it's just that, okay, is it flat? Is there, is there actually a decline in productivity? And it's not necessarily that you have to, um, um, you know, try to get, force them to do more versus what check the pulse or how sick is is the um is the is the group um is there a, is there a unwellness for lack of a better way of saying it is there something that is unwell with the team that we can address that we can address a bit further and then from there um again stats and all of that is one thing um a lot of times um from what i have seen with with some of the clients that i've worked with there's an absolute disconnect between management and staff mm -hmm. And that absolute disconnect um, really causes, again, a lot of the, the lack of productivity. So a lot of it is then going to be how do managers connect? And it's human connection. It's not just, okay, you're not meeting these numbers or whatever the case may be. A lot of it is human connection. Yeah. You know, what is going on? Um, you know, how are you faring? How are you feeling? What are some of the things that you may need individually to thrive? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's taking a pulse of your, not only just the organization, but even if we go to the management team level, um, being able to be able to take that pulse and from there open up the dialogue to provide whatever is needed for that, that, that individual or the team um, to allow the team to get well. A lot of it is like a, a, a sickness and how to, sickness and wellness kind of. Uh, kind I of don't feel like metrics is like from early intervention all the way up to prevention all the way up to keeping somebody at work which you know they you know we know with uh, long-term disability claims you know if you don't manage people well and the stressors you know it's not always that they've had it in their family it, it may be right. that some people have but if, if people aren't able to to you know get what they need Unfortunately, mm. they, they, they implode somewhere. <laughs> exactly. You know? And I think also managers have to look at turnover. Yeah. That's, I think that's a huge thing as well. And a lot of times, 
Um, they don't, you have to look at your statistics in terms of how, how many times has your, has your uh, team or your staff turned over? If there is a high turnover rate, you may also have to look at the, the culture of your team. Yeah, sure. And what is contributing to that as well. And again, there, there in and of itself may lie some of the answers in regards to, you know, what do I need to, to, to put, in, put in place to decrease that turnover? There's something here that is causing that. What can I put into place to, to um, in, not only increase productivity, but increase the wellness of that workplace environment so that you have a lower instance of turnover? Yeah, that makes so much sense, Natasha. Just kind of what is your pulse? And then based on just human connection, again, you're going to get some of the um, answers and then know what you need to start applying so um, to, to be able to make change. And of course, change doesn't happen overnight. Absolutely not. But it's starting to take the steps necessary. Absolutely. So I know we need to um, start wrapping up, but I know you do have a course coming up. So I would, would like you to uh, tell uh, people where, um, what it's a, maybe what it's about and where they can get a hold of you. I'm sure companies and executives that are listening um, will be quite interested in reaching out too. So if you uh, can let them know about your website, that would be fantastic. Okay, so it's great. So um, I do have a course that's coming up. It's an online course, so anybody can, you know, can hop on and, uh, and be able to participate. So the course is called Reclaiming Your Superwoman, and it's how to find your voice after divorce. So the reason that this course came about was part of it is, is sort of my personal journey as well, going through a divorce myself and having difficulty initially, how do I navigate that? But then how do I get to a space of finding my authentic voice and being able to, to speak my own truth in the midst of that without feeling stifled? Um, so in regards to that, the, the course, again, it's online. Uh, we're going to be starting it in April, first week in April. Um, my, uh, my, my info is, uh, my email is info, uh, info at drnatashawilliams.com. People can feel free to reach out to me there. And from there, what would I usually do is we'll book a 30 minute consultation in which we'll start to discuss a little bit more of what some of your issues are and what you would, uh, ideally like to see happen in regards to uh, being able to reclaim your voice and being able to, to move forward. We look at things such as the core beliefs that a lot of women have in regards to themselves and particularly in a, in a relationship and if the relationship is, is sort of unraveling and what needs to happen from a clinical perspective. I also use a bit of faith as well. So it's a clinical perspective, faith in my own personal experience that have been curated into, into this online course to help a woman find her voice and be able to live her own life and her own truth no compromise. So where has a lot of this compromising come from? Where has a lot of these core beliefs and values come from? And how do we get to a space where we can start challenging that? But then also being able to, what I usually call the term, how do you become comfortable with being uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we, we run away from discomfort and what we do is then compromise. And then we're unable to be our authentic self. So how do we get to a space in which we can then be comfortable with being uncomfortable and be able to then change the trajectory of our lives to be able to then walk in our own truth, no compromise. So I'll, I'll do a 30 minute consultation. And then from there, 
anyone would be able to register for the master class and it's a four week introductory match master class and from there you would then be eligible for we, I do have a more intensive three month and six month program as well once you complete the introductory master class and if you want to continue to work with me uh, to continue along that journey. Awesome. Well, what I will do um, for uh, Natasha is I will include a link um, so you can just check the bottom of uh, uh, the podcast and there will be a link that you can just go right on. And, um, you know, it sounds like an amazing, amazing class um, and the opportunity to work with you as a clinical psychologist with all the things that you're bringing with you um, along with the faith-based element to things having been there myself, um, you know, that importance of spending that time taking care of yourself when you're going through something like this is is very, very key. So again, thanks so much, Natasha, for spending your time. Thank Uh, you so much, Roxanne, for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. So for for leaders, um, I want you to really think about um, how are you being aware um, of the needs of who is in front of you um, when in any realm, um, obviously today we're talking a bit about uh, diversity, but just overall, how are you ensuring that you know who is in front of you and addressing what their needs are? Uh, like Natasha said, if we feel safe at work, we we are completely on and we're going to be most productive because I feel safe and secure. And I'm just going to relish my space because I generally, all of us want to do really, really well at work. So to keep that in mind, and if that's something that's not occurring, to start to ask yourself, what is it that I need to do to, to get connected to the pulse of what's needed within my organization that impacts the bottom line? So again, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll chat with you soon. If you're needing more information on me, you need to go to roxanderhodge.com, um, and uh, we can connect. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.